Hello, it's Friday, the 5th of January, and welcome to Korea 24. I'm your host, Kwon Jang Won. North Korea fired over 200 rounds of artillery into the West Sea near the inter Korean border on Friday morning. This led South Korea to evacuate residents from nearby islands and conduct its own live fire drill. We'll have more details in news briefing shortly. The South Korean government has forecast that the economy will grow 2.2% this year. We take a closer look at the assessment for weekly economy review, along with the recent debt restructuring filed by Taeyang ENC. And coming up for Movie Spotlight, our critics give their recommendations for what to watch this weekend in our revamped weekly segment. Let's begin Career 24. North Korea fired over 200 rounds of artillery into the West Sea on Friday, just north of South Korea's border islands of Pyongyang and Yampyong. This prompted the South Korean military to respond in kind with their own live fire drill. Our KBS World Radio news editor, Gui Jin, joins us in the studio now to bring us the details of the escalating tensions as well as our other headlines of the day. Hijin, hello. Hello, Jango. So the alarming shots in the morning prompted authorities to issue evacuation orders for residents in the area. They gave the all clear after three hours. But first, can you tell us how it all started? Well, North Korea fired over 200 rounds of artillery from north of South Korea's border islands of Pyongyang and Yeonpyeong Friday morning, prompting authorities, as you said, to issue evacuation orders. According to the Joint Chiefs of Staff, the firing took place between 9 and 11 a.m. with the point of impact above the northern limit line, the de facto uh, maritime border, with no damage inflicted on the South Korean military. The military, uh, as in the South Korean military, termed the latest firings as provocation by the north that threatens peace and escalates tensions on the Korean peninsula following the regime's unilateral termination of the 2018 inter-Korean military deal on November 23, 2023. The JCS urged Pyongyang to immediately suspend the provocation, gravely warning that the regime is responsible for the escalation of such a crisis. Yes, and then the South Korean military responded further within hours by conducting a live fire drill. Can you give us the details on that as well? Well, according to the Joint Chiefs of Staff, the 6th Marine Brigade on Pyongyang Island and the Yonpyong Unit on the Yonpyong Island conducted live maritime shooting drills in, uh, using canine self-propelled howitzers and tank guns at around 3pm. This marks the first time that Marine units deployed to the Northern Islands have conducted such drills since the inter-Korean military agreement was signed back in 2018. The initial provocation by the North is the first time in 13 months that its military conducted live fire drills in the maritime buffer zone since sending shells towards the East Sea on the Kusong and Kumgang areas of Gangwon province uh, on December 6th, 2022. Uh, immediately after the North's artillery shots rang out, Ongjin County of Incheon Metropolitan City issued an evacuation order. What can you tell us about that? Well, authorities issued the order uh, for the residents of five northernmost islands in the West Sea, including Yeonpyeong, Pengyong and Daecheong. It lifted the order three and a half hours later. According to the county, some 24% of the 2,085 residents of Yeonpyeong Island evacuated to eight sites, while around 9% of the 4,875 residents of Pengyong Island and 2.5% of the 1,400 
422 residents of Daechang Island headed to shelters. With the order in place, operations were restricted to three passenger ships that were set to sail between Incheon and the islands of Yeonpyeong and Baekneung from 1 p.m. And further raising tensions, reports have come out that North Korea has planted a large number of landmines on the road along the Kyungi railway line within Kyungui railway line within the demilitarized zone since early December of last year. Okitas. Well, the military official said that since North Korea declared its abandonment of the 2018 inter-Korean military agreement, South Korean military surveillance assets have detected the North planting mines on the road abutting the railway. The road connecting the two Koreas were completed in 2004 and was used by officials of companies operating in the inter-Korean Kaesong industry. Uh, industrial complex after the Customs, Immigrations and Quarantine Office opened in 2006 at Torazan Station, just south of the border. The North has also apparently completed, uh, completely restored several of the 11 guard posts within the DMZ using concrete. Having destroyed 11 posts in accordance with the 2018 agreement aimed at easing cross-border tensions, Pyongyang began rebuilding them and beefing up its military presence in the DMZ after walking away from the pact last November. Meanwhile, a US official said that North Korea recently provided several dozen ballistic missiles as well as launches to Russia. So what else do they say? Well, responding to an inquiry by a Yonhap news agency on Thursday regarding a recent Wall Street Journal report that Pyongyang provided ballistic missiles to Moscow, the official said that uh, Russia has become increasingly isolated due to sanctions and export controls. The limitations have forced uh, Moscow to rely on other countries in similar positions to secure military equipment, the official said, including North Korea. South Korean and U.S. intelligence authorities believe that North Korea transferred a large amount of military supplies, including artillery shells and missiles, to Russia around the time when Russian Defence Minister Sergei Shoigu visited the North in late July of last year and met with regime leader Kim Jong-un. The authorities suspect that the shipments continued after a summit between Kim and Russian President uh, Vladimir Putin on September 13th last year, with Russian satellite launch technology going the other way that was used in Pyongyang's military reconnaissance uh, satellite launch last month. Arms trade with North Korea constitutes a violation of UN Security Council resolutions. US Ambassador to uh, the United Nations Linda Thomas-Greenfield also said that the US will formally raise the issue at the UNSC meeting next Wednesday. Let's turn now to some more local political news. President Yoon Sung-yeol on Friday vetoed two special pro-bills one of which concerns allegations against her first lady, Kim Gani. The ruling People Power Party says the president did the right thing by vetoing the quote-unquote evil laws meant to influence the general elections, while the main opposition Democratic Party accused the president of abusing his power. Can you explain? Well, one bill involves allegations, as you said, against uh, First Lady Kim Gani of alleged stock manipulation concerning Deutsche Motors, while the other targets six members of the so-called 5 billion won club including the Dejangdong land development scandal. According to the presidential uh, chief of 
of staff, Lee Kuan Sop, uh, Yoon's veto of the power of the bills was a reflection of the president's responsibility to protect uh, human rights and constitutional values as the guardian of the constitution and the rule of law and to fairly oversee the elections. The DP, however, accused the president of abusing his veto power to bury misdeeds by his wife, adding that he was uh, he has prioritised his family over public interests. Despite its uh, parliamentary strength, the main opposition is 20 seats short of the ability to unilaterally achieve uh, such a result. Meanwhile, both the ruling and opposition camps are considering incorporating into the nomination process for general election candidates penalties for histories or remarks that promote politics of hate. Can you tell us more? Well, both camps have already introduced punitive measures in the nomination process for those who have caused controversy with uh, problematic remarks in public appearances, but are now aiming to further tighten the criteria to include exclusion in the wake of the recent attack against main opposition Democratic Party Chair Lee Jae-myung. The former member of the ruling People Power Party's leadership told Yonhap News Agency on Friday that both sides should not allow people who have promoted hate and rage to be in politics. Uh, PPP interim leader Han Dong-hoon hinted at the possibility of slapping penalties on such figures in the process of nominating candidates for the general elections when he spoke with, uh, with reporters on Thursday, saying that South Korea's society and people will not tolerate remarks on uh, or politics that encourage uh, hatred. That's where we're going to wrap it up for our news briefing today. Hijin, thank you for those updates. Thank you. The South Korean government has forecast that the economy this year will grow more than it did last year, spurred by recovery in outbound shipments of semiconductors in particular. Despite hopes of greater economic growth, there was another reminder recently of the risks that remain. The mid-sized construction firm Taeyang ENC filed for a debt restructuring program last week, sparking concerns that the company's cash crunch could spill over to other companies amid a real estate market downturn. To delve into these issues today for our weekly economy review, we're joined in the studio by economics professor Yang jun Suk from the Catholic University of Korea. Professor Yang, hello and Happy New Year. Happy New Year. So we start with the government's latest economic growth projections. So in the 2024 Economic Policy Directive on Thursday, the government said it forecasts that the economy will expand 2.2% this year, up from 1.4% last year. They said the growth will be centred on exports, particularly semiconductors this year. So, Professor, what's your take on the latest forecast and what factors do you think will make or break Korea reaching that 2.2% growth projection? Okay, first of all, the projection is achievable. Uh, but let me give you all the caveats. Uh, unless the uh, global and domestic economic environment is very stable, the beginning of the year projections are not very accurate. And everybody agrees that this year's economy is going to be unpredictable, so situation can change very easily. So don't hold anyone to year beginning pre- uh, estimates. Uh, 
But typically, government's projection is half realistic estimate and half growth target. Uh, and reputable research institutes estimate Korea's 2024 growth rate somewhere between 2.1 to 2.3 percent. So uh, the government estimate is certainly within that bracket. Uh, so it's, as I said, it's certainly achievable. Mm. Uh, but Two, uh, I think we should mention two things. The first is that this uh, growth rate is very close. It's slightly below, but very close to Korea's potential growth rate, uh, which is estimated by most institutes to be in the low 2% range. So this will be very close to what we would expect in normal times. Mm. Uh, so even our normal growth rate right now is not that high. Then the second caveat, as you mentioned, uh, it assumes a lot about uh, exports and imports. Uh, the uh, current report estimates that exports will increase by 8.5% compared to minus 7.4% fall this year. That means it'll recover and rise very moderately compared to two years ago. So it is certainly possible, but it does assume that China's uh, export increase will continue and uh, the uh, economic a global economic slowdown will not have too much of an effect, uh, but things can obviously turn around uh, any time during the year. Mm. And then the second thing is import uh, is assumed to be uh, to grow only by four percent. It fell by 12.1% this year, largely because global inflation is coming down and especially oil prices are coming down. Oil prices are around $72, $74 per barrel right now, uh, and it assumes that uh, that price range will continue. Uh, but again, that can turn around instantly. Right. External factors have been particularly volatile in recent years. So we'll see how perhaps global events affect the economy as well. But there are internal factors as well. For example, Taeyang Engineering and Construction, Korea's 16th largest builder in terms of construction capacity, has applied for a debt restructuring program in a bid to resolve its liquidity shortage due to real estate project financing loans. According to the company's regulatory filing last week, uh, Taeyang ENC submitted the application to its main creditor, the state-run Career Development Bank, after its board decided to request a debt workout. The decision on whether to initiate the workout will be made at the creditors' meeting on January 11th. Uh, before we look into this situation, can you give us the details about the company's financial struggles and the reasons behind the debt workout. Okay, well, the uh, real estate construction project financing or PF market had been shaky for some time, starting with uh, late 2022 when uh, Kangwon-do uh, governor stated that he may not guarantee loans uh, to finance Legoland construction. Uh, he took back that statement, but because of that, there was a, a lot of uncertainty in the market and the uh, int market interest rate rose. And then during the last two years, market interest rate rose further because the uh, policy interest rates uh, rose and high inflation increased the cost of construction. So these construction companies, they may have overextended themselves during the pandemic with low inflation and low interest rates and housing prices and uh, building prices reaching up record levels. So they may have overbought or over-participated in these projects. And then uh, during 2022 and 2023, uh, because of the higher interest rates, because of the higher inflation, there was an uh, increase in building costs. 
as well as reduction in prices of housing. So these construction companies were sort of caught in the middle. Uh, and uh, luckily, though, uh, people have been expe uh, expecting failures of construction companies since about 2023. But Taeyong is the first. Uh, we sort of lasted a whole year without too big an incident. But now we have this first company uh, that is hitting workout in fear of bankruptcy. Hmm. Now, Taeyong is the uh, 16th largest construction company, and its uh, PF-related debt is estimated by outsiders to be around 3.2 trillion won. Uh, its net debt uh, is 1.9 trillion won, and the uh, debt uh, capital ratio is 478%. Uh, it was thought to be one of the weaker firms because it right now has the highest uh, debt capital ratio. And it has not even started half of its planned PF projects. Uh, so most of it is just uh, empty ground right now. Uh, now, uh, workouts, uh, credit extension, it is voluntary, so it's not like a uh, court receivership, at least not yet, and uh, the uh, workouts ask creditors to share the pain in structure, restructuring. Uh, as, so uh, it asks creditors to extend or forgive part of the loans, uh, and then in response, the borrower promises to carry out painful restructuring measures uh, such as selling assets owned by the company, firing workers, and even somewhat controversially, owners putting their private assets and funds into the company. Now, normally in co uh, companies which have limited liabilities and stock ownership, you don't really do that. Mm. The whole reason that stock and limited uh, part, limited uh, liability exists is that uh, you don't have to put your own private money into it. Right. But this re recognizes sort of the uh, Korea's family ownership chever structure mm. because the uh, stockholders are not necessarily the people who control the company, people who uh, select the uh, person who makes the decisions. So in cases like this, they typically ask uh, the de facto owners, uh, the family, to put in their money. But the problem right now is that Taeyong family has, uh, in opinions of most people and even the financial supervisory board, they have not put their own money into the restructuring process. Right. The concern is, though, that this could have repercussions on other local build builders as well with high exposure to real estate PF loans, especially because of the prolonged stagnation in the domestic property market. So what are your thoughts on this concern? And how do you think this situation will pan out for uh, Taeyang ENC and other uh, builders in Korea? Okay, well, as it currently stands, the uh, financial sector, uh, the financial supervisory board and Bank of Korea and the government all state that there's very little chance that uh, it will spread into other uh, companies, uh, but there are some companies which are very vulnerable. Uh, so I wouldn't go as far as saying that this will stop here, Taeyong will be the only company, uh, but uh, if the, the Taeyong can have a lot of consequences, partially because they have a lot of subcontractors uh, that may go out of business if they don't uh, pay their uh, money uh, and if the uh, debt problem isn't worked out. Uh, it will also have uh, perhaps a uh, psychological effect on the PF market, uh, so it will lead to a sort of a domino effect. Uh, but uh, 
I think the government and the uh, creditors should take a hardline position. If the owners do not put in enough money, uh, then they should just let Taeyong go out of business because if they uh, make it too loose, uh, if they give too many benefits to Taeyong, then you may have other companies wishing for the same thing. So it'll actually destabilize the market. It'll create a lot of moral hazard problems. Uh, it may reduce the problem in the short run because for now Taeyong will survive, the subcontractors will survive, but it will create market expectations in the future, which will create more moral hazard problems, more firms seeking government aid and uh, debt forgiveness for making uh, bad decisions. Right. Professor, we do have another minute or so. So I wanted to ask one more thing. What do you think this tells us about the general health of Korea's real estate market, the financial markets, and even uh, the Korean economy in general? Okay. We... uh we sort of had this problem since the 1980s. Uh, Korea is perhaps too much dependent on debt financing rather than capital financing, though there are some logical reasons why companies do prefer debt financing. But we tend to have too much debt. Uh, we've talked about this uh, problem before. Korea has the highest uh, levels of uh, household and corporate debt, and that's part of the problem. Uh, debt coming in since 2020, uh, end of t- uh, 2021, uh, so debt during 2022 and 23, well, some of that may be forgivable because we had uh, interest rate increases that were unexpected, inflation rise, which were unexpected. Uh, but even before then, we had pretty high levels of PF debt. And that's because the companies thought that the low interest no inflation, low interest rate uh, that we had during the pandemic was a good chance to just make money. So de facto, it became speculation. All right. We'll have to leave it there for this week's Weekly Economy Review. Professor Yang, thank you for your time and your analysis. Thank you. Welcome to the Korea 24 Stock and Forex Update. The benchmark Korea Composite Stock Price Index shed 8.94 points, or 0.35% on Friday, to close at 2,578.08. The tech-heavy Kosdaq rose, gaining 12.08 points, or 1.39%, to close at 878.33. On the foreign exchange, the local currency weakened 5.41 against the U.S. dollar, to close at 1,315.41. You can check Korean stock and forex closings at world.kbs.co.kr. Next up, it's our daily segment, Korea Trending, where we take a look at some other news stories that have been trending online today. And for that, we have joining us in the studio, news editor Daniel Che. Daniel, hello. It's good to see you. Hello. It's good to see you too, jang Okay. So what do you have for us first today? Commuters frequenting buses traveling between select areas in Seoul are having a hard time these days, with some people having to wait for over half an hour later than usual to catch their buses due to congestion during rush hour. Right, so half an hour delay to get on the bus. I imagine the congestion would mean the journey itself takes longer as well. So grueling journeys to and from work then. Which areas are the ones adversely being affected? Well, the congestion is getting worse in Myeongdong and nearby areas, specifically on a 1.8-kilometer stretch of road from South Station to Myeongdong. On Thursday, in the case of one bus stop located in this area, where buses serving 29 different routes stopped by, there was a row of buses lined up and waiting for passengers to board. More than 20 buses were waiting, with a line stretching as far as 300 meters long, all wanting to move in and open up for passengers, but unable to do so due to the long line. 
Right, so this is a specific stretch of road that is the concern. So what's causing this sudden pileup? I understand it's not just about heavy traffic. Yes, indeed. It all started after a new format was introduced for bus stops on the 23rd of December. Seoul City devised a measure to have around 13 signboards up, distance about a meter apart. This was because the city was worried about stampedes due to passengers rushing to grab their buses. Before buses were dropping off and picking up passengers along the sidewalk using whatever space they could find, the boarding and disembarking positions were not fixed. Mm. Now, with the designated signboards, it's easy to spot six buses serving the same route lined up and clogging up the lanes together. So while the intent was to provide greater convenience, it is leading to a bottleneck stopping vehicles from moving. I see. So that is rather unfortunate. So what decision has Seoul City made regarding this issue? Because something needs to uh, change, right? Yes, they quickly responded. And earlier today, the city announced to install electronic signboards will be left off until the end of the month to prevent congestion. Um, also, they announced plans to redirect five of the 29 routes that pass through the affected stops to further help the situation. They are looking to work with the Ministry of Transport and to find additional measures to improve the situation. Right, so the issue was so pressing that the city suspended the system for now. It looks like they might have to rethink the whole idea. And I'm sure they'll also have to look into how the idea was greenlit in the first place and whether this issue could have been foreseen or not. Uh, it looks like the city dropped the ball on this one. It's one of those uh, seemed like a good idea at the time when they were getting off the drawing board and the blueprint. Right, so yes, indeed. But uh, perhaps they should have uh, been able to figure out that this might have happened as well. Okay, let's uh, move on to our second story. What do you have for us? It's official. Korea has become the 14th country in the world to have female soldiers serving on submarines. And the South Korean Navy's first female submarine crew is ready to jump into action. Yes, we actually covered this story before almost two years ago now about how female officers and non-commissioned officers were undergoing training for these historic roles. But it looks like they are finally ready to take it on now. So what's the latest? Yes, on Friday, the Jinnah Naval Base announced the list of the 38th batch of graduates who completed the basic submarine operation course. They completed grueling and demanding training courses lasting up to 29 weeks. Among 125 officers and NCOs, nine are women, and they are now officially certified and trained to serve onboard submarines. They each receive training in their respective fields, including operations on the bridge, sonar, and the engine. Do we know what submarines they will be dispatched to and what their roles will be? We do. Five of them will be serving in the 3,000-ton Tosan Anchanghu, and the other four will serve missions on board the Anmu. The officers will mainly serve in intel posts where they receive, collect, and analyze data deemed necessary for designated missions. The NCOs will mostly serve in their areas of specialty, including operating and maintaining key equipment, such as those linked to sonar, radar, as well as weapon system. The Navy worked hard to ensure this historic moment would come since July of 2022, when they pushed to make necessary changes to expand the role of female officers and NCOs to serve in submarines. So a landmark moment for the nation's military. Congratulations to them, and I'm sure they'll make the nation proud as well. OK, so what's the last story that you have for us today? A recent survey conducted by the Ministry of Agriculture, Food and Rural Affairs, along with the Korean Food Promotion Institution, has found what the most popular Korean dishes are for non-Koreans living overseas. According to the results unveiled by the two organizations on Thursday, kimchi easily topped the list to no one's surprise. 
Well, I mean, it is definitely one of the first things you think of when you talk about Korean food. But actually, I would say in the past, kimchi was a dish that was often described as one that divided opinion, or at least a dish that you needed an acquired taste for. So I think it tells us how far Korean cuisine has come uh, overseas now. Can you tell us a bit more about the results of the survey? More than 40% of the 9,000 people residing in 18 different major cities, including New York and Beijing, they picked kimchi as the first item that springs to mind when they think of Korean food. Some 23% said bibimbap, followed by bulgogi at 16, and right behind at 13% is Korean-style fried chicken. I see. So it's not about what was most popular, but perhaps what was the most synonymous with Korea. Interesting. So what else did the survey find? So last year, fried chicken beat kimchi as the Korean food people consume most frequently. 30% of respondents chose fried chicken with kimchi trailing as runner-up at 28%. Overall, awareness of le- awareness level rather of Korean food went up to 60% from around 57 the previous year. And the level of satisfied consumers exceeded 92%. And that satisfaction index has remained above 90 for the past five years. One reason for loving the country's food, those surveys said, the dishes are visually appealing, have amazing flavor, and are reasonably priced. Right, so the continuing rise of K-cuisine around the world. Okay, that's what we're going to wrap it up for today's Korea Trending. Thank you for those stories, Daniel, and we'll see you next time. Thank you so much for having me. It's time now for Movie Spotlight, our Friday feature where we review some of the latest cinematic releases in Korea and online. And we, of course, do that with the help of our esteemed film critics who are here with us in the studio. First, we have Jason Bechevace. Jason, hello. It's good to see you. Hey. Happy New Year, Jane. Happy New Year to you too as well, Jason. And we have Darcy Paquette with us as well. Hello, Darcy, and Happy New Year as well. Yeah. Hi, Jane. Yes, welcome back, gentlemen, to our first movie spotlight of the year. And with the start of the new year, we've decided to shake things up and do things a bit differently this year. Instead of simply reviewing two recent releases, we wanted to ask our critics, Jason and Darcy, what their viewing recommendation is this week, giving our listeners in Korea some ideas about what to watch this weekend. And if there is a major release, such as the latest superhero blockbuster that we simply have to review, we will ask if they recommend the movie or not, and then go from there as well. So, gentlemen, we're handing a little bit more responsibility to you both, although (laughs) I'm sure you'll be able to handle it. So with this new format, let's get cracking. Darcy, let's kick things off with you. What is your recommendation for us to watch this week? So this is a recommendation, particularly for parents with small children. If you are looking for some time off and you want something to keep your kids engaged and busy, Uh, certainly any fan of Frozen may have been aware that this movie is coming up. And so the movie is Wish. Uh, It's from Disney Animation. Um, I mean, Disney has done very well in Korea, both kind of the, you know, the traditional animation department and then Pixar as well. Uh, I mean, last year, Elemental was a really interesting case because it opened and uh, didn't open huge, but it just stayed and stayed and stayed in theaters and kind of slowly, you know, built up over 7 million tickets admissions. Um, 
Yeah, in in the case of Wish, this is a film that opened in North America um, at the end of 2023. Right, in November, I believe. Yes. And, I mean, it didn't hit expectations there. Uh, I mean, there are a lot of, perhaps, reasons behind that. Um, a lot of people have talked about the fact that, you know, Pixar or Disney, during the pandemic, started releasing their films directly to streaming, their mm. streaming service. And you know, kind of got families out of the habit of going to the theaters to catch the latest Disney release. And yeah, so that may be part of it. You know, the reviews have been so-so and you know, we'll talk more in detail about the film. Uh, but, you know, on the surface, it does have this pedigree in that uh, Jennifer Lee, the screenwriter and director of Frozen, uh, wrote the script. Um, and then there's Chris Buck, who was one of the co-directors of Frozen and... Um, he co-directed this film together with a Thai animator, uh, Fawn Virasunthon. And yeah, so a lot of people are looking to see, you know, how much of the, the frozen magic can this movie right. capture? I mean, it's clearly aimed at the same audience and um, young girls in particular, I think. Um, but, you know, they, of course, they throw in jokes to try to, ex you know, expand the... Um, the appeal to, yes, I guess, to, adults to and the parents uh, taking their children to see the film. Yeah, that's right. Um, yeah, and so the story, it focuses on this 17-year-old girl, soon to turn 18. Her name is Asha. She's played by Ariane DeBose, who uh, won an Oscar for her role in West Side Story. And, you know, she lives within this kingdom. Um, there's this king who everybody admires, and um, they have this system whereby when people come of age, they kind of give up one of their wishes to the king. And the king holds them together in his castle in this kind of magic containment system. <laughs> um, and then every so often he grants a wish. Uh, and so the, you know, all of the, the inhabitants of this kingdom, they, uh, you know, they wait and hope for their wish to come true. They trust in the ruler and basically uh, Asha gets an uh, up-close interview together with the king and realizes that he's not quite what he's cracked up to be. Mm. Uh, you know, the people in the kingdom are trusting him a little bit too much. And then as we get more and more information, um, you know, she discovers that she has a bit of kind of power herself. Uh, and it's connected with the whole, uh, I mean, it's kind of a Disney legend, the wish upon a star. Uh, and so Disney's kind of taking that from uh, the famous song. And yeah, and so that ultimately we get kind of a good versus evil type of confrontation. We have a lot of, you know, supporting characters. There's a talking goat. There's <laughs> <laughs> it's a classic Disney, essentially. Yeah, very, very much classic Disney. Okay. And what do you think of it? Why was this your recommendation this week? Well, I think that, you know, I mean, Disney has a lot of experience with this, Um it's my recommendation. That doesn't mean it's a hundred percent, you know, satisfaction. Sure, <laughs> sure. Um, and certainly, there are aspects of this film that do feel like they're trying really, really hard to kind of please the viewer. And of course, every movie wants to please its audience, but when you can feel the effort and kind of the sweat behind that and the <laughs> the desperate effort to appeal to the audience, then you know that's one thing that kind of turns off the audience sometimes. And uh, it is a little bit manic in parts, like the, mm. uh, the musical numbers, you know, the other, um, the humor. Some some of it does 
kind of just you know barely uh, stay under control uh, as we're watching the film. Uh, on the other hand, you know the you know the music. I think the the music will appeal to a lot of people. Um, you know, it is very aspirational, and you know, kids I think will appreciate it. And even if it's, they're not going to respond to it in the same way that they did to Frozen. Uh, you know, if you are a parent with small kids, there are only a few films like this that are released every year. And, you know, among the animated films of the year, I think that this is one that um, parents can kind of trust that their their kids will enjoy. Right. So perhaps not disciplined, but uh, definitely uh, fun for the family to watch and uh, some good messages, wholesome messages there as well. Jason, what do you think of it? Uh, yeah, no, I mean, I agree with uh, Darcy. Uh, I, I, you know, for the families, absolutely. This is this is this is a film that uh, is good to go and watch it together. I watched it with my son this morning. Uh, it's it's very Disney, um, <laughs> like literally. I mean, it starts starts off once upon a time, and then it finishes off happily ever after. And um, you've got the musical numbers, and um, so you're saying that's a bad thing? No, I mean, it just the thing is, it just. I mean, it, Disney's been cel- celebrating its centenary and um, it just, I feel it's like a minor kind of, it doesn't feel like a major piece of uh, filmmaking for Disney mm. uh, in the same way that Frozen was. You know, obviously that was a hugely significant film, as was Elemental, as was, you know, Coco, um, Coco and many others. And I think those films culturally, they're very interesting and, and significant. This this very much focuses on the individual again, you know, aspirational, as, as Darcy mentioned, you know, following one's dreams, wishes, you know, that's it, it's very quintessential Disney. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I, and it works very well in that way. Yeah. Um, it's very polished. It's uh, It's got a good running time. It's, what, 90 minutes or so or something mm-hmm. like that. Um, and, you know, it's very engaging. It's it's fun. It's fun to watch with, with the, you know, as, as a family. Um, but, yeah, it doesn't really break new ground. It felt somewhat complacent, uh, very safe, um and um yeah. yeah it'll work better for children than for yeah sure it works. Well. my son liked <laughs> it he you know he was like what was wrong with it and i was like well and i explained to him and he kind of went over his head but, uh, <laughs> this is but, why you shouldn't like this yeah. <laughs> so yeah i'm sure audiences i mean I, I actually went to see it in a fairly full screen mm. you know and the kids seem to be enjoying it very very much and i see audiences here very much uh, engaging with it, you sure. know, spe- especially the musical numbers. Um, but yeah, th- th- there's another movie I- I- I'd rather talk about. Okay, <laughs> well, okay, let's. I guess let's get on to that then. Uh, that was Wish, Darcy's recommendation of the week. Jason, so what is your recommended film of the week then? Well, this is actually uh, um, Darcy suggested this. We-, we-, we were kind of texting each other. Um, and because there were no other major releases out this week, so mm. we we're looking at other titles, you know, indie films. And uh, yeah, Darcy uh, rec- you mentioned uh, Maestro, uh, which is this uh, new film, very much in the kind of the Oscar race, directed and co written by Bradley Cooper, uh, obviously an A list, well established, uh, you know, Hollywood actor. And uh, he stars in this movie as the American uh, composer Leonard. Bernstein. Mm. Uh, so it's a biopic and uh, it very much focuses primarily on 
this composer's relationship. I mean, Bernstein, for those of you who listeners are not familiar with, uh, I'm less familiar with him as, as I'm not a uh, musical person. I'll, I'll be completely honest uh, about that. He's one of the most talented conductors, uh, uh, you know, of his generation, of uh, and uh, significant for being the first Amer- first American-born conductor to lead uh, a major symphony orchestra. So. Um, but yeah, here it focuses on the relationship between him and his, his wife, uh, Felicia, played by Carrie Mulligan, who's mm. just unbelievable in this movie. Absolutely unbelievable. She's just terrific. Uh, <laughs> and uh, it, it, it begins with when the composer, I think he's in his 70s, he's, 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 um, he's having his... He, uh, he's being interviewed on TV uh, and uh, he's playing the piano and, he, and he's kind of reminiscing about his wife and then it kind of goes back to his 20s, uh, initially to his 20s, where it kind of, it, it basically, I mean, it's at that point it switches to black and white, it begins in colour, and then as the film kind of progresses further into his life, it goes, it returns back to colour. Mm. Uh, and so, yeah, we get to see him meeting his wife for the first time at a party, and I, I love those kind of early scenes where they're kind of uh, developing their relationship and kind of fall in love. And then uh, as he becomes more successful... Uh, this adds strains uh, to his relationship with his wife and also we see him kind of engaging in various relationships with men as well Uh, and uh, but she remains you know from beginning to end one of his his closest friends so it focuses on him uh, his wife and also his family right Um, what I liked about this film uh, is the way in which it doesn't I mean uh, the conventional way to do, I suppose, would be to kind of focus on his kind of most famous music. And as I understand it, it actually doesn't do that at all. Um, we see him kind of develop this relationship with his wife. doesn't really kind of... You could focus on his, you know, the wedding and then the kids and all the rest of it. It doesn't really do that at all. Mm. Uh, and I think, you know, very much... It's very much dependent on performances here. And Bradley Cooper is fantastic. But Carrie Mulligan, oh my <laughs> goodness, she is sensational. And uh, uh, and later on in the film, she, uh, I mean, basically there's this really devastating scene where she's basically diagnosed with, with cancer and the doctor comes in and just within minutes, it, she's, she's basically been told about what's going to happen to her and it's just it's just completely devastating. Mm. And I think the scene really captured what I liked about the film because it doesn't. I mean, it, it it and that scene is quite brief, but it really lingers for a long time. And then right, we see okay. her basically, she, she, yeah. Subsequently, you know, uh, you know, she passes away. But yeah, it's right. it's, it's kind of done in a really, um, I would say, unconventional way. It feels a different. It feels a very. It's done organically, is what I'm trying to say. And uh, yeah, uh, it's. I think it's one of the best biopic uh, biopics I've seen in, in a long time. But some 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 argue that it's because because this particular right. composer had you know many relationships with men and it kind of doesn't really delve into his sexuality all that much. I think that's one of his strengths. Some would argue it's, it's the film's weaknesses. One of the film's weaknesses. Uh, but yeah, it premiered at the Venice Film Festival, compete right. for the Golden Lion. Uh, went on a limited theatrical release. It's now available on Netflix. I recommend it very, very much. Right, so you recommend it. You think it's uh, quite a powerful piece very and powerful, powerful yeah. biopic. Darcy, what about you? What did you make of it? Yes, I... <laughs> <laughs> I, mean, I was very impressed with the film. Um, I mean, Bradley Cooper has a really interesting career developing here because 
Um, you know, he had had huge success with *The Star Is Born*, uh, and then he moved on to this film. Uh, you know, this film I noticed was produced by both Martin Scorsese yeah, good point, yeah. and, and Steven Spielberg. Spielberg. Yeah. Well, so wow! He, I mean, quite a <laughs> quite a, a team behind you. Mm. <laughs> and he's you know clearly a really creative and talented director. Uh, you know, I think that to a certain extent you can feel him stretching his wings or kind of displaying his creativity. Um, and I wonder if it, in part that's a response to the fact that a lot of people, you know, would see him as an actor and some people are kind of skeptical when actors turn to directing, like, you know, you know, maybe you'll be good at directing actors, but are you really, are you really good at directing? And, and obviously there've been plenty of examples of amazing, uh, directors who started their careers as actors. So, I mean, he shouldn't feel the need to prove himself, but I mean, to me, the one thing that I felt in this film, uh, scene by scene, there was, there were really interesting things going on. Like the way that it progressed from scene to scene was not the typical pattern. And so everything felt kind of fresh in terms of the way that the story progressed and what it was showing us. Um, yep. I mean, to me, the one thing that made me kind of stand back a bit from the film was the sense that it was kind of showing, not showing off, but showing its creativity right in a very direct kind of way um and again trying too hard maybe like wish well i don't know i mean it i mean it's unfair to make this comparison but if we compare it to someone like spielberg like i mean spielberg has never done that because he always is so focused on the story and um, and just kind of lets the story tell itself and you know this one it feels very much like it's being told right okay uh and uh i mean clearly he's an extremely talented director. I, uh, I think he has a bright career ahead of him, and I, uh, I applaud him on this effort. Um, yeah. Last thing is, it's interesting that you know, Tar came out last year. Another big film about a, a fictional composer. Right. Um, I loved Tar. Tar is great. I mean, <laughs> okay. okay. Blanchett again. You right. know, what a performance. Well, unfortunately, we don't have time to go into that because we have we are out of time. Uh, that's we're going to leave it for our revamped movie <laughs> spotlight, gentlemen. That was fun. As always, thank you, Jason Darcy. We'll see you next time. Yep. Take care. Bye bye. I love coffee. I love tea. I love the job I job and it loves me. Coffee and tea. I'm Barista Omburam, and the winner of the 2023 World Barista Championship. You are now listening to Korea 24 on KBS World Radio. It's our Friday closing segment next week from Seoul Now, where we're looking at what's coming up in the days ahead. And joining me in the studio for that is our staff editor, Richard Larkin. Richard, hello. It's good to see you. Hello, Jana. Okay, so what's the first thing we should look out for? Well, the final results of the police investigation into the attack on the main opposition Democratic Party chair Lee Jae-myung will be revealed next week. A man in his 60s, surnamed Kim, stabbed the left side of the DP chief's neck last Tuesday at the site of delayed construction for a new airport on Gaddock Island. He had pretended to be a supporter of Ease to get close to him. The attacker can be kept in custody until next Thursday, and a committee will decide whether to reveal Kim's personal information to the public by then. And the police plan to announce the final results of the investigation, including Kim's motive for the crime, next week, once they complete forensic investigations into the attacker's phone and other items. 
Yes, the attacker is said to have provided the police with an eight-page justification letter. The details have not officially been released yet, but there have been reported leaks, which uh, news outlets have been reporting on. Hopefully, we'll get some more answers on why this man did what he did uh, next week. Let's move on. What's the next thing we should look out for? The Consumer Electronics Show, or CES, will kick off next Tuesday at Las Vegas Convention Center in Las Vegas, United States. CES is the world's biggest trade show where tech companies showcase their new products and software, including products related to 5G, AI, sustainability, robotics and drones and more. Over 4,000 exhibitors from over 150 countries will attend the event from next Tuesday to Friday, and it's believed that over 130,000 people will attend the show. A number of Korean companies will be heading to Las Vegas for the show next week, and there these companies will look to introduce next-generation memory semiconductor uh, products, eco-friendly technologies, plans for a hydrogen energy ecosystem, as well as AI-powered smart home systems. The South Korean government will also attend. The Ministry of Science and ICT will head to uh, America to discover the latest technology trends and promote global expansion of Korean companies. So we will be able to get an idea of what the technology industry will look like in 2024, both in Korea and globally. Yes, we'll in fact look to connect with the reporter at the event next week to get the lowdown on the event and all the trends this year. OK, a y let's look at one more. What else is happening next week? Ahead of the AFC Asian Cup, which takes place next Friday, the South Korean men's national football team will play a warm-up game against Iraq in Abu Dhabi on Saturday at around 10pm Korea time. The Taeguk Warriors, who are 23rd in the FIFA rankings, are hoping that taking on 63rd place Iraq at New York University Abu Dhabi Stadium will help them adjust to the battles against Middle Eastern teams in the tournament. It'll also be a good indicator of what could happen in the AFC Cup. That's because if South Korea wins Group E and Iraq finishes second in Group D, they will go head-to-head in the round of 16. So yeah, the national team arrived in Abu Dhabi on Wednesday to start its training camp and to prepare for the warm-up game. And Klinsman and the players met with former Korea coach Polo Bento, who is currently managing the United Arab Emirates. Yes, who will also be playing in the AFC Asian Cup. Uh, The Korean camp have set ambitious goals to try and win its first Asian Cup title in 64 years, right? So there's a lot of expectation at the moment. Right. Many think that this is the best Korean squad the country has seen possibly ever, with huge stars like Son Heung-min, Kim Min-jae, Lee Gang-in and Hwang Hee-chan donning the badge. I'm sure that football fans are eagerly awaiting Korea's first game in the Cup, which will be against Bahrain on January 15th. Yes, but first, the friendly against Iraq. We'll have the post-game analysis on our Monday Sports Roundup next week. That's all for next week from Seoul. Richard, thank you for those previews, and we'll see you next week. See you next week. And that's where we close out our show. Join us again on Monday for more news, views and reviews from Korea. I've been your host, Kwon j a n g w o and thank you, as always, for listening. Goodbye. KBS World Radio.